Welcome back to Awareness to Action Enneagram Podcast. My name is Creek, and we are on our final episode of uh, the Emotional Intelligence and Types. We've been talking about seven, eight, and nine. And today, what I'd like to know from you two is what is one thing that you just cannot stand to eat? For me, it's very easy. Eggs. Uh, I don't like kay. eggs. Uh, okay. <laughs> How do you how do you do all the bodybuilding that you do then? But it's it's interesting because I don't eat eggs like fried eggs or boiled eggs, but I can eat mayonnaise and I like it a lot. Or things that have eggs, so mm. it's not an allergy. I just don't like the, the smell texture. of it, the texture. The, the just huh. okay. It's weird, but don't eat it. Even if I have to, I just. Don't. Maria? Uh, I don't eat peas. Uh, I don't care for them, but it's more a matter of principle. And I'll, I'll explain. So when I was a kid, you know, I'm of the generation where you eat all your food uh, on your plate that you're served because there are children starving in Africa and all that. Uh, actually, it was China mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, okay. Kids, right. kids starving in China. And... Uh, <laughs> Gosh. I, you know, this is what we, this is what we learned. Um, yes. So, uh, so I was about, I want to say, ten or eleven years old, and we were having peas for dinner, and I just didn't care for them, and so I didn't want to eat them. And my mother said, "You're going to sit at the table until you eat those peas," and I sat at the table for hours, and she finally gave in, and I have not eaten peas since. I'm still proving a point. <laughs> Nobody We're not will petty make here you at all. Nobody will make you eat peas. That's right. <laughs> Next time I cook for you, I'm going to sneak in peas somehow. Well, yeah, you you know. won't even know it's there. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I, I before you go on with yours, Creek, or maybe I'll be surprised. But I had a lunch meeting with a, some clients, and my first course was peas and egg. <laughs> <laughs> amongst other things but so if we were sharing i could have eaten your eggs you could have eaten my peas yeah well i don't like them a lot but that's, i can eat them that's why uh, the partnership works so well yeah. right there right there folks i don't know if i have any strong i used to have very strong aversions but then three months in china funny enough um Taught me how to enjoy lots of different things. Yeah, well, um, you know, when people are starving, you know, they'll eat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I will say the thing that just, I can't do fried apples, which is a Southern delicacy. I just, in that. general, hot fruit, it's just, no, no, fruit is uh -huh. supposed to be either fresh. Even like a cobbler or, cold. or you know, something. Uh, I can... Yeah, I'd rather I'd rather it be cold. Uh -huh. Like that's when I can. Gotcha. But I'd I'd much rather just eat the the fruit mm -hmm. fresh. Okay. So, so tartatan from French food, you don't eat that. <sighs> Depends, you know. I mean, I'll I'll eat a lot, but I'd just rather I'd rather just have the fresh fruit. That's just my thing. So let's go ahead and jump in uh, to the last three numbers today. We're again we're hitting seven, eight, and nine. So with seven, we're talking about self control. Mari, why don't you give us the rundown on that? It helps to understand what the core issue is for the seven. The seven is struggling with loss of contact with the core quality of joy. Their strategy is striving to feel excited. So they're chasing stimulation. 
Um, they're adrenaline junkies in a sense, right? It doesn't have to be jumping out of airplanes. It doesn't have to be, you know, riding motorcycles real fast or something like that. But I want new sources of stimulation. And whenever we get used to new sources of stimulation, we tend to have less tolerance for boredom. Okay, we're looking for that dopamine hit all the time. Okay, so sevens are looking for stimulation, and this means that they get distracted easily and that they jump from thing to thing. So this idea of self-control, not pursuing the squirrel, is a challenge for them. Okay, And so what happens is they can get into this endless cycle because they jump from thing to thing. In certain areas, they don't develop expertise. They don't develop skillfulness in certain areas. They cover it up with being charming and jumping around and so forth and become insecure, fearful, right? And you start to see all of these challenges develop. They lack self-confidence in certain areas. They have a lot of confidence in some areas, but low self-confidence in other areas. So all of this makes it more and more difficult for them to stick with something. Now, this doesn't mean that sevens can't stick with something. There are a lot of really, really smart and accomplished people who are sevens. I, I've been surprised at how disproportionate the number of theoretical physicists or cosmologists seem to be sevens. Hmm. Right? So they can, they can be very bright people, very accomplished people, but sticking with things is a challenge for them. Or are the only theoretical physicists that you see? It could be. Yeah, they it could be. Because yeah. they're the yeah. only ones that are interesting, right? So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know that many theoretical physicists, and the ones yeah, who yeah. I do know tend to be on television or wherever. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they make it more interesting. Yeah, but yeah. you could say the same thing about anything. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. You could say the same thing about any field, you know, uh, of intellectual pursuits. Right. So, uh, so I think there's mm -hmm. something to that. Just yeah. my anecdotal insight. Yeah, yeah. And when we're talking about the self-control, I think that one of the things that seven struggle with is uh, saying no to themselves when they want something, and it's when they cannot have it. It's frustrating because of these need for stimulation. So self-control is difficult because I just want this shiny object and I want it now. In a way, it's similar to the eight, to type eight. I think that they want something, but I guess it has like a different tone or affect. How would you describe, Mario, the difference between the eight wanting something and the seven wanting something? It's, for me, it's the, the seven wants more and they, they bounce more, whereas the eight stays focused, right? You know, if you think about the vices of those two types, gluttony is, I want it all, right? If I'm at the buffet, I want some of everything. And with the eight, it's lust and it's, I really want that, Okay. So I don't have to have everything, but I want that, and you better get out of my way. So that's that's the distinction. That feels has some transmitting energy to it. Mm, not necessarily. 
I, I, don't, okay. I, don't, I don't think. I, I, it plays out in the three instinctual biases, right? Sure. It'll look different in each subtype, what it is they want. But mm-hmm. with, you know, with all eights, it's, you know, it's that I, I have tunnel vision, right? That's that's all I can think of. Hmm. <laughs> Rio Jose, <laughs> that, that nod of agreement there, huh? <laughs> yeah, but we'll save that for the Yeah, we'll save eight. that. Okay, yeah, yeah let's yeah, not yeah. jump ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, what it makes me think of is, I've just been having a lot of conversations recently on society um as we do um and just the how how wonderful and great it is that we're we're learning what lines don't need to be there anymore um we're we're finding new ways to express ourselves etc but what ends up happening is in an attempt to be rid of the lines that we that don't need to be there or that are harmful for being there we end up not drawing any lines and we think ultimate freedom is the lack of boundaries, the lack of critical thinking, the lack of right or wrong or best or better or whatever. And I think it's, it's like, for me, I'm, I'm realizing that setting up my own boundaries, setting up my own self-control and self-discipline is actually in some ways the source of my pleasure because it is, I mean, kind of gets into some Hegelian stuff, but that it's it's in the act of resistance that gives me the satisfaction and meaning that I desire. And so having some level of self-control means when you do let yourself get to something is when you'll actually feel that sense of groundedness, then you can just access it whenever you want. It, be, it no longer becomes pleasurable. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, uh, it was a little wandery, but it made sense. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, um, I was listening to. Uh, <laughs> I was. Yeah, listen- but, go ahead. Will you comment on that or or something else? Because uh, I, I was going to comment. comment. I was going to comment on that, but please, you go okay. first. <laughs> I was going to say that that felt a bit like something a, a four would enjoy more than a seven. Like I, I, I'm not sure how much <laughs> yeah. a seven would resonate with what I heard as kind of suffering a bit to enjoy more later or something like that, you know? And and mm-hmm. I think that for sevens, I'm not sure that you would convince them that that's something they would appreciate. However, I think that there's a, a problem with having all the options open for sevens where they think they're free, which makes them prisoners of trying to be free, you yeah. know? And, and, and that's... I think the problem, they will feel more excitement if they set some boundaries, if they are able to make a call sometimes and decide for one thing and not the other, that will make them feel happier, more excited and free to make a choice. Not making a choice, it's not freedom. And that's a misunderstanding that sometimes sevens have. I was listening to an interview, uh, a podcast interview with Rick Rubin, the movie producer, I'm um, not music producer, uh, last night on, I think it was the uh, Armchair Expert podcast. And Rick Rubin is kind of the most famous music producer probably, you know, has been for many years. And he just wrote a book on creativity. And he was making this very point that, self-discipline creates freedom because when you are disciplined 
it creates space in your world instead of chaos, right? When you don't have discipline, when you don't have lines, when you don't have boundaries, when you don't have a limit to your number of choices, you have chaos. And chaos is disorienting and it's paralyzing and it's not fun. It's not pleasant. So the, the lesson for the seven is to, by narrowing the choices, okay, by in instituting some discipline, some self-control, strategic self-control, that's when they gain freedom. That's when life starts to become fun again. Okay? Uh, so we always talk to sevens about savoring, right? about taking the time to be in the moment of something for just a little bit longer. All right? And there's a discipline to that as well. There's a self-control to that. If I can stop and smell the roses for 10 seconds, tomorrow I want to do it for 12 seconds, and the next day 13, et cetera. Right? We don't have to jump into it and you know, enter a Zen monastery and practice meditation for a month. No, just take two minutes right, and gradually work your way up. So it's freedom that lies in restriction. But I, I would agree with Maria Jose that using the word suffering as an inducement to a seven is probably going to backfire. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that you even used the word creek, but it felt yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think yeah. all you used was restraint. Well, I, I like but that's it. what a seven would hear, right? I, 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 sure. Let me read what we wrote in Awareness to Action, if I could. So the um, You will anyway, Mario. I will anyway, right? <laughs> so the, the kind of the standard story is to me striving to feel excited excited means having fun, staying upbeat, remaining focused on what is pleasant, easy, and satisfying. It involves entertaining others and not holding back in my pursuit of entertainment and my avoidance of what is unpleasant. I feel most comfortable when I don't hold back my enthusiasm in pursuit of pleasure, all of which are in conflict with self-control. But we go and we change that story to something along the lines of being excited involves more than the pursuit of immediate pleasure and avoidance of pain. Practicing self-control will help me avoid irresponsible behaviors that cause me problems now and in the future. It will help me focus on long-term happiness rather than short-term pleasure. And I even these days try to avoid the word happiness and talk about contentment. I think there's a big difference. I think happiness is too fleeting. Contentment is a more stable experience. Uh, but then finally it says, I can find enjoyment by delving deeply into my experiences rather than skimming across the surface of life in search of the next high point. It makes me think of uh, somebody else that, that I love listening to, um, Peter Rollins, who says, uh, being freed from the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. And where like LA is is one of the place the largest places in the world that everyone is just constantly in an anxiety anxious wreck trying to find peace and happiness and it's like what if what if you didn't yeah <laughs> yeah and and if a seven would think about happiness similar to excitement again you will never convince them that that's something they will not look for and I think that it's the the long term, short term is the key again, and and that's part of the um, authenticity part of the awareness to action process. So understanding that when I look for this short term pleasure by avoiding conflicts, 
conflict or by just doing whatever I feel like doing, I will not feel excited, happy, content in the long term. Makes me become open to other options. And maybe ex exercising some self-control now will make me feel even happier or more content in the long term. And that's how you get them. So instead of blowing all your cash on one thing, maybe spread it out. Blow a little bit yeah. of cash so you don't yeah. become homeless. Right. Yeah. I have these client um, who I worked with some time ago. He's a seven. And he had a problem because his interests were really broad. He likes to do take courses and do things on so many different areas. And he couldn't say no to himself and he was doing things, but he was not accomplishing some of the things that he wanted to accomplish. And, and that brings, in the, regardless of his uh, example, when sevens don't commit to something, don't follow through, they have a problem with um, feeling trustworthy, you know, feeling like they will deliver on the things that they commit to. And sometimes they don't commit to things because they don't believe in themselves that they will be able to follow through. So what he did was say, okay, we worked on what is like a vision you have that will make you feel happy or content in the longer term. Okay, so how do you accommodate the tasks, the things, the actions you do today so that they are aligned with that vision you have, with that dream? So what he does now is he does a lot of things still, but every time he thinks about doing one of these things, he says, how is this going to contribute to this bigger dream I have? And if it, if it does, even if it's a loose contribution, but still works towards that dream, he does it. Otherwise, he doesn't. So he says no to himself on certain things. So the lines are kind of still broad. There's an, a, a wide range of things that he still does. But he knows that doing each of those things will help him get closer to this longer-term dream he has. And that works for him. He still feels excited about doing these things, but he also feels he's making progress towards that big dream in the long term. There's another piece of this I want to bring in. Um, Maria Jose, you talked about the concern about not finishing something. There's also often a concern about not being able to do it or not doing it satisfactorily in a way that pleases other people. Right? Most sevens are real people pleasers, even though they, this is not something we read that much about in the literature, but they want to make other people happy. So very often they will avoid things out of fear of disappointing those people that are close to them. So that, that's a piece of this as well. I, th I think that we, we probably at some point talked about my chimpanzee rule, right? Maybe when we were talking about type one, I, I, I don't remember. But for, for the listener who may not have heard it, a very simple rule when it comes to the practice of acceptance that we talk about related to point one Humans and chimpanzees share 98.4 or 98.6% of their DNA, okay? really, really close. So there's 1.4, 1.6% separating us from chimps. And so in my view, any day that we're not swinging around in trees and throwing poop at each other is a pretty good day. 
And if we have that, and I know that sounds bleak, and I know that sounds <laughs> cynical, and I know that sounds pessimistic, but it's actually really liberating. Yeah, right? you know, in my case, it makes you like people even more. Yes. I don't expect more than, I mean, a lot from people, and that's not a bad thing. I just take what I get and... Well, most times, but I try when I remember the rule. But it makes my life easier and it makes me more compassionate, more loving of people, you know? This uh, lowered expectation about people is not because we think people are bad or there's anything wrong with them. We're just acknowledging our nature, right? We're, we're primates. We're all suffering. We're all trying to figure this out as we go. And we're going to screw up a lot. And if we expect that out of other people through the recognition of the human condition, then it makes us more compassionate and more empathetic. I also think there's a piece, and I'll, I'll throw this in and then we can move on, I guess, unless you have other questions. But I often encourage my clients to read the essay by Albert Camus, The Myth of Sisyphus. And so Sisyphus was the mythological character who was punished by the gods and forced to roll a rock up the hill and then let it roll back down for the rest of eternity. Okay, so the idea being that the gods thought the worst thing they could do to somebody is give them a meaningless task to do forever. And from Camus' perspective, this is the human condition, right? We live in a meaningless universe uh, or an inherently meaningless universe. We can put our own meaning into it, but Camus at least believed that there's no inherent meaning in the universe. And we're all really just pushing that rock up a hill until we die. And life is just solving one problem after another. Happiness lies in accepting that fate. And then happiness contentment springs from not expecting life to be, you know, all beer and Skittles, as my grandmother would say for some reason. I don't even know what that means. But, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know and, and the seven falls into thinking that life should be good and fun and happy all the time. And the sevens aren't the only people who do this, right? And when mm -hmm. we realize that's not life, life's just one damn thing after another, and you get up and you solve a problem, and then you solve the next one, and you solve the next one, that's actually the secret to contentment. And out of contentment, happiness comes because we're more easily able to enjoy what we have when we keep chasing the high or we stop chasing the high. Does that make sense? I mean, it was a bit wandry. Yeah, but, I stopped um, listening like <laughs> a minute ago. <laughs> <No>. but, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think regardless of whether you think the universe is inherently meaningful or meaningless. I think that the point stands of, but all you have is what's in front of you. Whether pushing the rock up the hill is, um, is, is for some universal purpose or not, it is what we, it's what we want to do. I mean, you're, every day you get up, you're choosing to continue to push the rock up the hill. Whether, yeah, whether there's some deeper meaning in that or not. I think that, when you listen to certain parts of the religious dogma or whatever you want to call it, 
God accepts us for what we are. Now, you can decide to listen to the part where God expects us to be perfect or do this or do that. But when you see certain aspects of it, Jesus would be friends with a prostitute, with a thief, and had no problem with it. It was the other people who judged him for it. So I think that understanding that we're human beings and our nature is as it is, not good or bad. We just do things. We have good intentions and we sometimes do it the wrong way. It doesn't work. I think it's the most compassionate and spiritual thing that we can do. Now, to me, it's a distortion to think that we should be otherwise. So specifically what I said was that the universe, in my view, is inherently devoid of meaning. But Camus' whole point is that once we realize this, the only way to become happy is to infuse it with meaning. And that can be whatever we want it to be. Okay, it can be a choice mm -hmm. of a religious perspective, you know, any one of a number of religious perspectives. Or it can be something of our own making. Okay, I'm not suggesting that we live without meaning. I'm suggesting that we have to create our own meaning if we truly want to be happy. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're just puppets. Or we give in to despair. Yeah, and you know, um, but you know, it's a sign of, I think, it's a sign of maturity as human beings to realize that life is not what Disney yeah. has in its movies, you sure. know? I, I, I keep blaming Disney for the idea we have about relationships, <laughs> you know, about family, yeah. about couples, about everything. Uh, we have this idea in our minds that it's just a fantasy. Yeah. We have idealized life. We have idealized how we are supposed to be. We are human beings trying to do, as Mario was saying, the best we can. And sometimes we screw up. Many times. Mm -hmm. Most times. But we have one challenge after the other that we need to face and deal with. And that's life. And nobody tells us that when we're kids, or mm -hmm. some people, probably, the, those who lived in kind of rougher environments when kids, when they were kids, mm -hmm. know that, but they don't know about dreaming or, you know, and we need both. Mm -hmm. But this mm -hmm. idea of this fantasy world is just problematic because we're not prepared for what's really coming. I think Disney World is the perfect metaphor for this mindset of the seven, this problematic mindset. What is the what is the the motto of Disney World? The happiest place on earth. Okay? And you go there and there's this con this soundtrack of constant crescendo music that is a constant crescendo. It's always in the crescendo piece. Playing everywhere all the time. And there are these people walking around dressed like the mascots and trying to force you to be happy. 
and to go on these rides that hyperstimulate you and all these sort of things. Honestly, it's my idea of hell, right? It just, it's, it's just, it's awful. There's peas everywhere. <laughs> so I, I actually went to, the last time I went to Disney was after with my family, after going around the world. And we're at Epcot Center, and they have all these cities. And not, not, not a one of them looks like the real place. It's mm. this fake fantasy, force yourself to be happy existence that only leads to suffering. So put that in your head and smoke it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right let's move on wow. so disney is the source of oh, all evil so you'd get along real well with the conspiracy <laughs> theorists um and the hyper conservative yeah. christians uh, <laughs> great i'm a big supporter um, of disney as having the right to do whatever the heck it wants without government interference uh. you know <laughs> children's tales were a lot more realistic in the past yeah. uh, you know the witch yeah. would put the kids in the oven and yeah. bake them <laughs> you know <laughs> burn them and, and those things those endings were changed later because it, were, it was too much for kids you know so they were more real before and they have been softened now and everything has a happy ending today and it's just not like that sorry Greek <laughs> 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 no, listen, I'm all about sad endings. I mean, it's, it's what I live for. Um, but, so, but you can still enjoy them. Yeah, you can still enjoy yeah. life, understanding that there are problems along the way, and lots of them. Mm -hmm. Type right. 8. So type 8, empathy. Uh, Rio Jose, why don't empathy. you handle this one? How... <laughs> yeah, I think that'll be great. Look, I'll I'll give you my my uh, my understanding of AIDS and why empathy is a problem. And I'll be quick. It's a problem because it's a yourself, it's Laura. a problem because uh, it's a sign of weakness. I, I, That's what it is. Yeah, but, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'll yeah. mute myself again. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll, I'll mute you. So for AIDS, when thinking about difficult things, uh, they kind of uh, detach from those things when they are feeling it, you know? So it's when I, once I asked Mario, and I think I've shared this story, how do you feel about these things? And, and it's like, what are you talking about? It's like background noise. I, it's, it's like, doesn't, don't pay too much attention to those things because that that's a weakness, you know? I will not be powerful if I'm weak, if I'm uh, spending too much time on these things that are difficult or that I'm where I could be suffering. What's that? So it's just not even, not even trying to avoid, not, not to deny them. I think they don't get in touch with it uh, or they try not to get in touch with it. So... Because that's how they live. They just can't understand why other people are different and why are they struggling with certain things, why they are feeling like that, why things affect them so much, when for them it's like foreign, you know? So it's hard, for, I think, for them to be empathic because they, it's just foreign to them. Would you agree with that, Mario? 
or differ from it? Yeah, I, I think this is so with AIDS, there's this idea that, you know, I always think of the movie Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, who was the wrestler, Jesse the Body Ventura. And there's that great line where Jesse the Body Ventura gets wounded and somebody says, You're bleeding. And he says, I ain't got time to bleed. Right, because they're out to kill this this predator, and this is the mindset of the eight. Right, I I don't have time for this, and so yeah, so they're not really in touch with that empathy. They're not in touch with their softer side, and they can become frustrated when they see other people taking the time to bleed. Right, um, <laughs> and so it leads to a lack of empathy. Let alone, well, I don't know why let alone about licking, it, right? Yeah, let alone licking their wounds, right? You know, like. <laughs> hey, look, I, I'm not trying to say this, you know, is the right way to think about things, you know, but we're just describing the mindset. Mm -hmm. I what I see oftentimes is. I mean, this is kind of what you're saying: is they're not only are they afraid to be human, but they don't want to acknowledge that other people are human too sometimes because it then would require meaning like limits like they don't want to admit to their limits yeah. at least the eights in my I, life yeah i think that that could be a an interpretation of what happens okay uh from the outside but i believe that from the inside it's just you know what you, there are certain things that you don't have time to do or that you don't do without any, I wouldn't add the intentionality to it. I wouldn't say that they're mm -hmm. afraid or they are, they think it's bad. It's just not practical, you know? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I think that's one of the uh, common misperceptions that I always hear about. And that kind of mm -hmm. irritates me because look, you know, I've, I've shared with you guys many a times, you, you just start playing the theme from Rocky and I'm crying like a baby. Right. I watched I, I watched a movie sure. over the weekend, a really wonderful Japanese movie called Afterlife. And the premise of the movie was that after you die, you go to this bureaucracy and you spend five days choosing one memory that you can take with you into eternity. And so they went through exploring these people's lives and then they, you know, finally settle on the memory and they, they, re, they, they sort of reproduce the memory in a little video for them and all this. And it was just the sweetest, most wonderful movie. And afterwards, I just sobbed. Right? I'm not afraid of showing my emotions. I'm not afraid of, you know, bearing my soul in some way. But... I do it when I have time for it. And that's the that's when eights lack empathy is when they think that, you know what, this isn't the time for this. Okay. Now, again, that's not fair because, you know, again, I'm not justifying this. I'm not trying to say, oh, eights are right and everybody mm -hmm. should be like eights. I'm not. But that's the mindset. Why do you think there's such a, a delineation between is, like... This is the this is the time to do emotions. This is the time to do this thing. What's so what, is what that drives the eight is striving to feel powerful. Power is the capacity to produce a result. There are problems to be solved. There are dragons to be slayed. There are you know things that need to be taken care of. And if I sit around licking my wounds, 
I can't get those things taken care of. Okay, So that's where it's coming from. It's not because I'm afraid of it or anything, but there is just this, this incessant drive to slay dragons. Okay, is what it comes down to. And so compart- compartmentalization compartment- is, compartment- is foundational to what happens with the, the eight. And that's the connection to five, yeah. right? That's that mm-hmm. striving to feel detached. Mm-hmm. I put it in a box until later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the book and see what's the story that eights typically have around uh, developing empathy, it is, to me, striving to feel powerful means expressing my will and letting people see that I am strong and in charge. I believe tough love is a more effective way to treat people than coddling them. So being empathic can leave me vulnerable, but vulnerable in a way that it's not like weak, like I'm soft. It's like vulnerable in terms of exercising power, you know, doing what I want to do. It's like a weak spot that might not allow me to get the job done. Yeah, it's it's, it's like an Achilles heel, right? Yes. In, in a sense. Yeah. It's not vulnerable like people will think that I'm weak or that I'm less. It, it's, it's more like I will not accomplish what I want. I will not. What do you think? Well, I'll mm-hmm. finish the sentence. If people see mm-hmm. me as soft, they will take advantage of me and I won't be as effective in getting things done. So, so showing empathy shows that I'm willing to be affected by you and that lets me not that that doesn't allow me to accomplish what I need to accomplish. What if I listen to you and I pay attention to your whining and all of that and I end up telling you okay it's okay don't do it because I it's I feel weaker that way you know so it's so it's not so it's all around power and it's power is uh, the power to, I mean, the ability to produce a result. I will not get the result if I pay a lot of attention to your whining, to your fear, to your issues. For mm-hmm. for eights, life is battle, right? There's there's some kind of contest going on, and the contest is not, you know, a comparative sort of thing, but is it a problem that needs to be solved, a threat that needs to be dealt with, a result that needs to be made to happen? And the reason that eights will struggle with empathy, so imagine being in battle and somebody gets wounded. You know, one of your co-soldiers gets wounded. I can let myself feel your pain. I can be affected by it. And I'll probably be joining you in the morgue, right? You know, instead, there's people still shooting at us, okay? So we'll come back to that. And the problem is that the eights forget to come back to it. And and again, you know, I I, want to be real clear. I'm not justifying this because life is not really a battlefield, okay? And, you know, and this is the lesson that eights have to learn. Yeah, and in the short term, might help you get the things done, but in the long term, it won't. So that's how Mm -hmm. the new story comes in, you know? So it's 
Real power is the ability to express my will and to get things done. The more I can get people to work with me, the more powerful I am. By showing kindness, sensitivity, and empathy, I can create relationships with people who will be loyal to me and help me accomplish my vision. So I will be able to make them want to work with me and not just fear me. I will be able to, I don't want to say charm, but inspire them in a way that in the longer term, I will accomplish even more things. I will have more power if I stop and I'm more empathic and spend some time looking at those things that you're struggling with because you will want to work with me longer. But if you say you need to sacrifice power and stop, don't worry about power. The most important thing is to be empathic and stop and connect with the feelings of other people. The AIDS will not listen to you. What are some examples of small things that AIDS can do that they could they can step into that? It's funny. I and and that I think it's linked to some of the um, the other two emotional competencies that are chosen for AIDS. That it's Empathy, self-control, and communication. And I think communication is key. I think that's kind of the lever, the thing that you can manage better because the eights do care. Eights are not always angry as sometimes it looks. And by saying that, by revealing themselves, by telling other people that they care about certain things, it's a good tool. And I'm not saying it just for you, Mario. Uh, you're not the only one who looks angry most of the time. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> my daughter, as I said, she's a navigating aid. And so many times I look at her and I say, oh, she's angry again. You know, what doesn't she like this time? What isn't she getting that she wants? And it's angry about it. And I, when I ask her, she says, I'm not angry. What are you talking about? Sometimes she is, but many times she isn't. So I've seen Mario say when she's starting a relationship with someone like work-wise, says, if I look angry, so you know I'm not angry all the time. It's just my face, you know, I, I look like I'm angry, but I'm not. So saying those things, saying that they like it, saying that they care about certain things will help them uh, get a long way because it doesn't look like they like they care. Yeah, I, I, I like that, and um, you, you know the, the big challenge I have is that if I'm not smiling, I look angry, and if I am smiling, I look psychotic. So it's a bit of a dilemma. Um, but, <laughs> but or that you're making fun of someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the eights benefit from practicing small acts of kindness and deliberately putting other people at ease and going out of their way to find ways to, like Marie Jose said, and I do this, especially in the era of Zoom, where all people can see is my face on the screen and not the rest of my body language, which would probably be even more terrifying. But the... Uh, <laughs> 
but but I will say that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No, you've well. been hitting the gym, but but, so, but uh, I, I I I do say that to people. Just want you to know, I'm not as angry as I look, right? Just to kind of put them at ease a little bit, and it's smart for the conversation, but also it just mm-hmm. makes things easier for them. But unnecessary kindnesses is, in my view, the most important thing eights can learn to do. I think we've talked about this multiple times, but part of self-awareness is not just self-aware of how you're self-aware of what's going on inside of you, but how you are being perceived by others and compensating for that. Yeah, To me, that's one of the most important things about the Enneagram. It's understanding how other people probably perceive you and manage that. I remember, Mario, when you were, I think you told me the story where, I don't remember the details, but you were at some hotel checking in and you were nice to the person there at the hotel and somebody said, oh, you're nice or something like that. Somebody, I didn't think you were that nice or something. Do you remember that story? Yeah, um, somebody who was observing and who knew who I was. And, you know, and I... I get that, you know, people know that I'm an eight or, you know, if they know who I am or of me or watch my videos or listen to my podcasts, they think I'm a nice person. (laughs) And, and, you know, and I've had many times over the years people be surprised that I'm a nice person. Um, And, you know, and there's a part of me Mm -hmm. that's like, why would you be surprised? But there's a part of me that also gets it. Just something I give off. All right, so we're moving into our last and final one, the nine, and this is about improving initiative. So nines are striving to feel peaceful. So what this means is that they can tend to avoid things that seem like they're going to disrupt them from their peacefulness. The classical vice of the nine is sloth. Now, that's always represented as a psycho-spiritual sloth, which it is, but it's also about engagement into the world, full engagement into the world. One of the things that nines struggle with is not feeling valuable and worthy and good and confident in themselves, so they stay out of the way. Very often what looks like just being nice people from a nine is not valuing themselves, not being benevolent to themselves to give themselves equal um, worth among other people. So I let you go first because you're better than me and I don't want to upset you and I don't want to have conflict. So what does this mean? Is they just don't do things that they should do. Usually, the things that they want in life. It's not that they don't do their work, not that they don't do their homework. It's not that kind of laziness. I've I've never really seen that kind of laziness any more in nines than anybody else. It's about initiative primarily for themselves and what they want. They just sit back, I'll, I'll write that book tomorrow. I'll write that song tomorrow. I'll do whatever it is tomorrow. I would also add uh, that another obstacle to taking the initiative, it's not seem seeming arrogant because yes. that's something yeah. that they actively avoid. 
And lots of things feel like if I do this, if I, if I take the initiative, if I take the lead here, if I comment on this first, I will look like I'm full of myself and I will be seen as arrogant and I want to avoid that. So that's a good point. And that's actually what we write about in the book, right? Is making your voice heard, expressing your opinion in a meeting. And I can't tell you how many nines I've talked to over the years who have said, I don't want to be that guy who's just talking to talk. And so what they don't do is share valuable insights that they have. And so everybody thinks they're kind of a dud because they're not contributing. Yeah. I've even heard people say about nines. I mean, I've heard people from boards of directors saying, why is that guy in the room? Right? He didn't say anything. And it's out, of, you know, he's got things to say, but it's this fear, like Marie Jose said, of being arrogant. It's that connection to point three. So initiative is about putting, not just going after my own needs, but expressing my own value for the good of the group, for the good of the organization, for the good of the community what i understand is like it's often the image in our minds that we think that we're supposed to be that we're resistant to isn't actually what it actually is no you don't have to be the person that talks in the room all the time but you can contribute and this is what happens with almost everybody on whatever it is they're resisting they fall into binary thinking okay the eight thinks i'm either strong or i'm weak the nine thinks I'm either humble or arrogant. And I'd rather be humble because I don't want to be arrogant. The reality is, is that everything exists on a continuum. Okay, there's a whole lot of space between overly humble and overly arrogant on the continuum of how we present ourselves. So when we're working with a nine, we work them along the continuum rather than saying, no, I want you to be that person who's just speaking just to be heard. I don't want you to be that person. I want you to be somebody who says what they have to say when they have to say it. And if you don't have something to say, just shut up. That's fine. I usually ask them how they behave in meetings when I know that it's a nine. And they think that they will feel more peaceful if they keep a low profile, as it says in the book. And uh, and if they don't repeat what somebody else said, because that's another thing. Why am I going to talk if that person already said that? But I could say that I agree, you know, but they just keep quiet. And they feel like, they think that they will feel peaceful if they do it that way. But then when you ask them what's their internal conversation, they are kind of struggling and saying, should I talk now? No, I will not say that. Oh, somebody said it, and I should have said it before. And it's anything but peaceful. So when they understand that they're not even accomplishing that basic thing they're looking for, again, they're open to changing the behavior. Yeah, and and that's an important point, Marioze, because what's often happening with nines is that they're miserable because they're not getting the recognition they feel they deserve. They're not getting the acknowledgement. They're not getting the credit. And so even on the surface, it might seem peaceful. On, on the inside, it's not, there's nothing peaceful about that. They're angry and depressed and bitter. So the, the contribution aspect, what's, what's the motivation for them to feel good enough about their contribution? 
to speak up and kind of, yeah, to make a point. So what's the sign that what they have to say is good enough to make the point in the meeting or? Yeah, if there's not really self-confidence that I have something valuable to contribute, I also don't see how striving to feel peaceful is actually connected to to doing that sort of act. So the reason it's connected to that act is because when they don't do that, they leave the meeting and for the next three days feel miserable and angry and anything but peaceful. Okay. Mm. So they lose peace Mm -hmm. in the long term out of fear of losing it in the short term. So when nines are not sure if what they, if they, if they're not sure whether or not they have something to contribute, there's a couple of criteria. Number one is this your area of expertise. Okay. If it's your area of expertise, you got to say something at some point, right? Even if it's just to reiterate something that somebody else said. Now, again, you don't overplay this. You don't want to be the one who says, yeah, I, I agree with Maria Jose and then repeat what she said. Okay. Um, only a jerk would do something like that. So if it's your area of expertise, you've got to find a way to say something. But the other option is to ask questions. It inserts you into the conversation in a non-hostile, non-arrogant way and then opens up the door if you don't get the answer that you want to add your two cents to it. There's another so that's yeah, something I there's another aspect of it. If I don't speak my mind, if I don't share, if I don't contribute, maybe a decision will be made that I don't agree with and problems will come up. And that's conflict, and that's not peaceful. So taking initiative to preempt the potential problems that they see. Yeah. I think what's... It's in in the book, the the typical story is, to me, striving to feel peaceful often translates into keeping a low profile by not speaking up in meetings, not selling myself or my ideas, and not being assertive or decisive. This behavior helps me feel comfortable, composed, and secure, which reinforces my striving to feel peaceful, but it is in conflict with improving in initiative. So it's counterintuitive. They are kind of against each other. Initiative, if I take too much initiative, it will go against me feeling peaceful. That's why they resist it. But when they change that story, True peacefulness lies in addressing problems, tasks, and conflicts now so that my world will be under control and hassle-free in the long run, even if it leads to short-term turmoil. By seizing opportunities, volunteering to take charge of projects, and so forth, I can be more in control of my own fate and avoid problems when they occur. And I think this is really important because if not, I'm just observing what happens around me and things happen to me. And those things could make me feel not peaceful at all. By taking the lead, by doing the things that I think should be done, when I have an opinion, of course, I'm more in control and I can determine what happens and make it more peaceful. I'll just point out that it's before they occur rather than when they occur, right? So we kind of head them, yeah. you know, head them off at the pass. But, but yeah, absolutely. That's 
exactly it. This is the work. The awareness to action process is the work. Constantly reminding ourselves to be aware. Constantly refining and improving our narratives in a way that honors our fundamental values. Does it authentically. And then taking action and repeating. That is the work. The Enneagram types, knowledge of the types, is just what you put in to that process. They're the grist for the mill. Yeah, it makes it go smoother, makes it kind of go faster, but it's just that, an input. Like guardrails of sorts. Well, guardrails, Guardrails it, 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 it helps you see the problem faster. Right. So if I'm working Mm -hmm. with somebody who's a four, the first place I'm going to look is at striving to feel unique and how that's causing an issue or what their instinctual bias is. So, you know, we always say that the Enneagram is a problem resolution protocol and that it tells you where to look first. Reboot your computer. You got a problem? Reboot it. Turn it off. Turn it back on. Uh, Mm -hmm. Look at striving to feel powerful. Look at striving to feel perfect, et cetera. But once you look at those things, then you have to put them through the process. Okay? Because if all you're doing is looking at it and saying, oh, yeah, I'm such a four. So what? You know, you're just walking in circles. So in summary, do better. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, to me, I have... It's like... Stop it and do better. It's like with apps or programs... (laughs) You have an app or a program and you need updates all the time because there are new challenges, new Mm -hmm. things that you Mm -hmm. have to face. Mm -hmm. And the old program version of the code doesn't work for it. And if you apply that code to to the new problem, it will not be resolved satisfactorily. So you need to create new code. Now, where do you... Where do you turn on automatic updates? I, I haven't found that setting yet. <laughs> well, we're dealing with old uh, hardware. That's the problem. Yeah. 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 That's true. All right. Well, uh, thank you, listener, for joining us on this little ride through emotional intelligence. And uh, we'll so talk long. to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast.